You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Okay, Psalm 100, um, and it's on page 526 of our church Bibles. A psalm of thanksgiving. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his. His people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning everybody. I haven't met you, my name's Jonathan, the pastor here and might not feel like it outside, but it is the Psalms of Summer, and uh, we love spending uh, January and February each year running through the Book of Psalms, God's songbook. Um, this is the ninth volume of the Psalms of Summer, and, um, and uh, I've probably said this every year, you know, but just, just to remind you, um, here's my theory of why. The Psalms are so important for us. Here's my theory of why I think um, song, songwriting and poetry is really important. I think this is what's going on. I think this is why everyone's got a favourite song. This is why when you've just broken up with your boyfriend, you listen to sad songs. Why when you fall in love with your next boyfriend, you read poetry. Right? This is why. It's because there is this gap, this, this huge gap that exists between our experience of something and our ability to articulate what we're experiencing. So you see your first child born and you're speechless. You don't, you, it, you're overwhelmed by the experience or you get married or whatever. These, these experiences we have or even just abstract things like the reality of heaven or that sunset, or, you know, you fill the blank, but your experience of things can be so overwhelming. It's a common expression, right? I'm lost for words. I don't, I can't, words fail me. And so we put into that gap songs, poetry, artistic expression to fill the gap between what we're experiencing and, and our inability to articulate. Uh, this happened the other day when I was w- with my daughter, India. We were on a hike um, India's my, my hike buddy because she has limitless energy and she never gives up. So I just, well, I just keep going until it looks like she might be in danger of not making it. And so we did that uh, about a week ago on Mount Macedon. And it was this really incredible atmosphere up there because it was, again, it was summer, but it was, there was thick fog all over all over the mountain, like you couldn't, I couldn't see from here to the back of the church, and uh, it was deserted because no one wanted to be out in that kind of weather hiking around, and so we, we, we hiked this kind of, fi- we, we made our way like 15 k's right up to the, the summit at um, Camel's Hump, and, um, and we were just enchanted by it. And, and the way that India described it, because she's very artistic herself, um, the, the way she described it was she said, this is a very mysterious and magical place. And, and then we were talking about the smell, and she was like, it's such a green smell, which is exactly what it was. Um, and, and because it was so intoxicating, she couldn't just say, this smells like being in a forest. She had to say, this is a green, right? That's the, that's the function and facility of poetry, of song. That's why we love coming into the Psalms each year, because the Psalms, God's songbook, these 150 songs, poems, give voice to some of the deepest experiences we have in life and faith. 
And so I always encourage people, if you're going to make a resolution for this year, take Suzanne's about praying more and then just add one to it and, and read one psalm each morning. You get through the psalms a couple of times throughout the year. Just read one psalm and allow yourself to experience what the psalmist is experiencing or in kind of uh, reviewing your own experience of life at this time, see where it chimes with what the psalmist is talking about. That's one of the functions of this book. Apart from telling us great things about who God is and our place in God's good world, it provides us with these moments of, of, um, of resonance with the Scriptures. For example, this morning, if you are here and you have dragged yourself here, or if you're online because you couldn't drag yourself here because you are feeling low, depressed, maybe even abandoned by God. My assumption for most of my Christian life has been you shouldn't talk about that stuff, you shouldn't express that stuff, God has not abandoned you, therefore that is not true, therefore you should not give voice to it. You should, I don't know, bottle it up, deny it, put it somewhere else, pretend that it's not happening. That's just been my default approach. Um, That's not biblical. That's not the way the Bible treats feelings of abandonment. This is how the Bible talks about abandonment. You go to Psalm 13 and this is what it says. Open, honest, real with God. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? That's not an example of sin or petulance or offensiveness towards God. That's a prescription for how you talk to God when you feel this way. So this is what the Psalms do for us. They give us language for experiences that we can't articulate using our own facilities. And today, the, the feeling that we're going to tap into, the feeling that um, I hope that we resonate with is the feeling of gratitude. That's what Psalm 100 is about. If you see the bold um, note at the top of, uh, in the CSB, it says, Be thankful. That's something that editors came up with, which is a pretty good um, description of what the psalm is about. The, the, the stuff in italics there is from the scriptures. That's inspired by God. And so it tells you this is a psalm of thanksgiving. This is what God wants for us this morning, is to see gratitude expressed and then to take up the call to give thanks to God in response to what we're reading. It's a prescription for how we ought to approach God in this gathering together. Gratitude. Gratitude is a really powerful emotion, a powerful experience. If you've ever found yourself taken up with, overwhelmed by, saturated with gratitude. I don't just mean to God, but maybe to your kids or your spouse, your boss, or someone who's done you a good turn. That experience of gratitude is very powerful, and and it's a shaping force. Most of you guys know that one of the most profound experiences of my life in the, the period in which I became a Christian was when I was a when I was 19, this is year 2000, went to America, lived there for a couple of years, worked with um, the Salvation Army, with inner city, very impoverished African-American kids from Pittsburgh, which is a, a very working class city, a former steel mining town in America. And all of these kids were from very poor homes. Some of them didn't have homes. Um, and... So it was a great privilege to be able to work with the Salvos and, and have the express purpose not just of um, giving these kids a nice place to go to in the country for a week, which is what it was, but to share the gospel with them. And in the, um, 
the orientation, two weeks of orientation we had before the camp began. Um, we, we spent this time with a couple of sociologists and social workers who were educating us about the environment these kids were coming from, the kinds of struggles that they had, um, and what we could expect in just dealing with them, in, in kind of living with them 24-7 for a week or so. And a lot of it was about kind of the worst case scenario. Like what happens if you discover a handgun in a kid's baggage, which I did on more than one occasion. Uh, these were, I had the oldest boys, they were 12, right? And, um, and had lived a life in which they needed to be able to protect themselves at all times. So we came across that. We learned all kinds of methods of restraining children who were losing it. Um, so it was just worst case scenario. And so after those two weeks, I was like, what have I done? Why, what have I got myself into? And then the kids turned up and my experience with them week after week for months was that they were the most mature, most engaged, most respectful young men that I'd ever come across. I've never met a 12-year-old who was more mature, definitely, um, but engaged in what I was sharing with them and, and like, and so I went to one of these social workers a little way through the, the, the camp experience and I said to them, you know, like you prepared us for a really bad set of circumstances. Kids who are out of control and disrespectful and maybe violent and my experience of them has just been that they're wonderful kids, like I just love them. And she said, yeah, he, like, here's what's going on. Um, she said, all of the boys in your cabin that you're dealing with every day, none of them have ever met their dad. None of them. Uh, and this is a common thread in impoverished communities in America, particularly African-American. Um, the most common cause of death for... African-American males, at least at this point, this is 20 years ago, uh, in Pittsburgh, under the age of 40, was homicide. That's, if you're going to die, you, you, someone's going to shoot you, right? So she said, these boys have never met their father, and now you're here, you've come from the other side of the world, some, like, fairy tale country, um, and you care about them, you are investing in them, you are talking to them, you are taking care of them. And she said, um, never underestimate the power of gratitude. The power of gratitude to change the lives of these young people. What they're experiencing is gratitude. And some of the powerful stuff we saw happen there, right, right from um, kids laying down weapons for the first time through to kids coming to faith in Jesus, was born out of the kind of, the context of this, this sense of gratitude. So what we have in this passage, this psalm, is a prescription for life change. This is a prescription for, for, for a shaping of the heart and mind that will enable us to better experience life as God intends for it to be experienced. Now, here's what I'm assuming just happened when you heard that this morning's message was all about gratitude. I'm assuming what happened, for some of us at least, was like, really? Gratitude? I'm meant to be thankful? Were you around for the last 12 to 24 months? Not feeling gratitude. I'm angry, frustrated. Annoyed, anxious, depressed. And first of all, yes and amen. But I do believe that in putting this psalm in front of us this morning, God actually does want to shape us, change us, maybe reintroduce us to an experience of gratitude that maybe we haven't been feeling for a long time. Now, here's a big obstacle for us, I think, in our culture. A big obstacle for us when it comes to feeling the way we do, 
in light of what's been going on for the last couple of years, and then coming to a psalm that is essentially commanding us to feel grateful, thankful, joyful, glad. What happens for us in our culture is um, we, we, we crash up against this problem, and our problem is this. We, we, and this is very particular to our culture and our time, we have been brought up to have this understanding that, um, that feeling precedes doing. That I should only do something if I feel like it. That something is only of value or genuine if I first feel it in my heart. And that's a problem for us. It's a problem for us when we feel the way we do in all likelihood and then we come to a psalm that says, sing triumphantly or be grateful or give thanks. We, we bump up against this feeling, this problem, that, this pernicious idea that at all times I must follow my heart and unless I'm following my heart then I'm lying to myself or being disingenuous or whatever. It's the, it's the it, like, you can blame Walt Disney and just about everything else around us, right? This, this idea that, that I need to be true to my feelings at all times. Actually, that is a ginormous lie, and it's actually not what we experience in the day-to-day. That might be theoretically what we believe, but that's not how we behave, thank God. If you actually behave that way, you would be very, very lonely and depressed. The truth is that very often doing precedes feeling and doing is actually the kind of pathway to feeling. Let me give you this example. This is an example that I experience on a nightly basis because my kids just will not sleep through the night. And when I say kids, I mean they're 11, about to be 11 next week, and 8. So these are not toddlers. For whatever reason, my kids, particularly my boy, uh, who's probably watching this right now, will not sleep through the night, Judah. And it's not his fault. He's not even conscious of what's going on when he screams out in the middle of the night. He's not even awake. He's just in the habit of doing this, and India is not much better. She does it as well. She's not conscious of it either. It happened last night, for example. Now, two o'clock in the morning, if my boy Judah is screaming out at the top of his lungs, if I make the decision that I will wait until I feel like going to him, to attend to him, if I just need to feel it in my heart before I go and do the thing that's required, I will never, ever do it. Because I never feel like getting out of bed at two o'clock. Am I the only one? It'll never happen. But there's this really interesting thing that happens when I do it. When I, over, when I say, I'm not going to wait for it, me to feel it in my heart. When I just go and do it. You know, after a couple of minutes of sitting there with him, I have all kinds of feelings of love for him all kinds of feelings of wanting to nurture him and take care of him. So this is an example of doing preceding feeling and not being encumbered by this idea that first I have to feel before I can do it. I think that's the invitation to us this morning, irrespective of how we are feeling, to set aside this kind of romantic idea that I must follow my heart at all times. Here's the truth. This psalm, Psalm 100, I believe is a prescription for Christian flourishing. I don't think that you can have a strong, um, vital, uh, um, vibrant faith in God that isn't frequently punctuated by praise. Thanksgiving, gratitude. Even the most dry, 
you know, reformed theological academic person in this church ought to be frequently bursting with praise and thanksgiving. If you want an example of this, just read Romans. It's the most dense, academic, theological, head knowledge book there is, and all throughout it, Paul's just like bursting into praise. Because he had this genuine faith, this flourishing faith. Doing often precedes feeling. We need to know that if we're going to enjoy a flourishing Christian life. Or, again, to go to the poetic thing, like the, the words to be able to provide the, 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 um, the, the substance of what I'm saying, the, the, to, to, to provide the color of what I'm trying to communicate, to put it poetically, here, how did I write this down? The seeds of emotion grow in the soil of practice. There's your poetry for the day. The seeds, if you want to feel it, don't wait until you feel it. Do it. The seeds of feeling, the seeds of emotion grow in the soil of practice, just showing up, giving voice. So, the psalmist here is going to give us a lot of stuff to do. A lot of stuff to do, which will give birth to feelings, feelings of gratitude and thanksgiving. Let's take a look at it. Verse 1 and 2. He says, Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. This is an invitation to happiness, to joy. It's an invitation. Even if you're sitting there really grumpy, this is an invitation to every one of us. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly. Not just the ones who feel like it. Not just the ones who had a good night's sleep last night. Let the whole earth Shout triumphantly to God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Do it. Practice it. This idea that gratitude is a powerful shaper of who we are, of our very personality, our very brain, is an ancient idea. This is, you know, a 3,000-year-old idea from the Scriptures. But it's something that actually the modern science is discovering for itself. It's a little late. But a lot of research has gone into this idea of gratitude and the power of gratitude to increase our well-being. see a lot of secular research around this and they're revealing what the Judeo-Christian ethic has always known. There's this um, whole kind of think tank at at UC Berkeley in, in, in the USA. And uh, I, I've got a quote from them. They have this, this list of 10 ways to become more grateful. They've got a whole kind of, um, it's called the Greater Good Science Center, which is seeking to improve people's mental well-being through evidence-based research. And number four on their list is learn prayers of gratitude. Interesting says, in many spiritual traditions, prayers of gratitude are considered to be the most powerful form of prayer because through these prayers, people recognize the ultimate source of all they are and all they will ever be. What they're telling us to do is read and memorize the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of thanksgiving, of gratitude, just like this one, Psalm 100. It's almost as if God has designed this for you to memorize this week. There's five verses. You guys know song lyrics that are like five times more than that. And this secular scientific think tank, not just the preacher up front who's paid to say it, but these guys are saying, memorize the Psalms. You want to learn to be more grateful and therefore experience more mental health and well-being, memorize the Psalms. 
don't just memorize them, but do them. Don't just be hearers of the word or even memorizers of the word, but be doers of the word. Now just imagine, like, this, this has all of life implications, as we're going to see in a minute. But just think for a second. Let's just narrow the focus to here this morning. If we just narrow it down to Sunday morning, what would happen, what would happen in this church How would your experience change, both in your practice and your experience of those around you, if every Sunday morning we did Psalm 100, verse 1 to 2? Let the whole earth, or in this case, the whole church, shout triumphantly to God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. What would that look like? How would that change the atmosphere in this place. Well, that's what we're being told to do. This is an imperative. This is God saying, don't just think about these things and throw them, you know, toss them around in your mind, theoretically. Do them. On Sunday morning, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. told you there's a lot of research on gratitude and there's a there's a particular thread in this research which is I, I've found interesting for my own well-being and my sort of counseling ministry because by far and away the most common um, problem I think that we're facing in our culture in our context is the problem of anxiety and particularly the last 18 to 24 months Right, rates of anxiety, people's real-world experience of anxiety, the uh, consistent experience of anxiety, not just punctuated by the fact that I've got to get up and read the Bible at church, but all throughout my day and night, feelings of anxiety have gone through the roof. So there's this interesting thread in the, in the whole kind of sphere of research on gratitude. There's this, this interesting... Uh, phenomena whereby gratitude is, a, is being seen to be a great antidote for anxiety, the experience of anxiety. It's as if gratitude dissolves anxiety. The more that you practice gratitude, thanksgiving, it's, it, it shapes your brain. It rewires pathways, neural pathways in your brain that, that fend off that guard against feelings of being overwhelmed and anxious. When we were on that hike the other day, um, at one point we were down by this lake, sanatorium lake, and as we left it, all of a sudden I heard India scream, and she was looking down at her leg, and this enormous leech, like Satan's own leech, was on her, her leg, just like flailing around and she just she lost it and I had a stick and I was like beating it with a stick and she was like what are you doing don't break and then she eventually just knocked it off and she said to me um that like if we ever come here again you need to bring a thing of salt daddy you need to carry a packet of salt because she knows that leeches dissolve in salt you just pour some salt on a leech and just disappears. That seems to be what gratitude does to anxiety. The leech of anxiety is dissolved by the salt of gratitude. That's why I see this as a prescription, not just for flourishing in faith, but just flourishing in general. That shalom piece that, that, that Suzanne referred to, the shalom piece of God, is like communicated to us through gratitude. It opens us, somehow opens us up to more and more deeper experience of God's peace. So if you're experiencing anxiety at this time, or I should say, since you're experiencing anxiety during this time, hear verse 3. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Read that and take a deep breath. 
The Lord is God. Yahweh is God. God is God, which means I am not. Praise God. The Lord is God. I am not God. Do you know how much of our anxiety, this is how I conceptualise it, how much of our worry is determined by like the gap that exists between the control I think I have and the control I actually have? That gap is called worry, anxiety. If my assumption is that I should be able to control everything that happens in my life and everything should go according to the script that I have have written, then every time I experience reality, which is that I have almost no control and no power to author the story of my life, then that gap is filled up with worry, anxiety, frustration, anger. And so therefore, if I acknowledge God is God and I am not, he is author, I am character. He is creator, I am creature. Then that just, I can breathe again. It's not up to me. The fate of my own life, my family's life, the life of my church, the life of the world does not rest on my shoulders. The Lord is God. God is God. I am not God. God is shepherd. I am sheep. He made us and we are His, His people, the sheep of His pasture. That's a beautiful image. Don't get hung up on the fact that sheep are dumb, all right? Or just embrace it because it's true. But Either way, the image puts the emphasis not on us as sheep, but on him as shepherd. What does it mean for me that I am a sheep and that I have a shepherd, like an all-powerful, all-loving, all-present shepherd? How does that change the way that I view the world that I'm in? How does that lead me to a place where I can give thanks and praise? The most beautiful, the most well-known description of this is obviously back a few psalms in Psalm 23. Let me just read verse 1 to 4. A little different in our translation, just as beautiful. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. I shall not want. I have what I need. He leads me. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's the picture that God's songbook paints for us of our relationship to God, who he is, what he's like, and what that means for us. What that means for my life is green pastures, quiet waters. And even when I go through darkest valleys, even when I go through multiple year pandemics, I fear no danger. I'm not overwhelmed with anxiety. Why? Because I'm not the shepherd. I'm not the God. I have a shepherd and he is with me, he will never leave me. Now, if that's true, if any of that is resonating, if any of that is breaking through the hard outer shell of worry and anxiety and pride and self-worship, if any of that is resonating then how how do you then relate to this God, this shepherd God? How do you relate to him today? How do you relate to him when I'm done in a few minutes and I say, let's stand and sing? 
How do you relate to him? See verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. To bless someone is to speak well of them. So if this is true of you, if you really are the sheep of that shepherd, then the way that you relate to him and the way that you live all of life is to be constantly, consistently entering his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, giving thanks and blessing his name. Now, for Israel, when this was written, that meant going to the temple. The gates and the courts, they're in the temple. Because that's how you worship God. You need to be at the temple because that's where God lives. How much more can we embrace this prescription for flourishing, given that we don't need to enter any courts or gates? We don't have to attend a temple. You don't even have to come to church to do this. You are the temple of God, and therefore wherever you are is the temple. Wherever you are, the invitation is to Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. This is why it's actually an attainable vision to make all of life all about Jesus. Because Jesus is with you wherever you are. And the invitation to make all of life all about him, that's another way of saying worship him, is an invitation for all of life. So the question should never um, be one that you wrestle with. Is this an appropriate time to worship God? The answer is yes. But I'm at work, but I'm at the gym, but I'm walking down the street, but my kids are giving me a hard time. The answer is yes. Now is a good time to enter his gates, enter his courts. Give him thanks and praise. Now, I don't have a lot of time for this, but I feel like it's important. It's prescient because this is the first service of the year, and I've got this this thing nagging at me, which I think would be a good kind of um, a good kind of value for us to work towards in the coming year. That we have this, uh, in our church, in this congregation, we have this, I was going to say weakness, let me put it this way, promise I'm not a politician. We have this growth opportunity. We have, and no, actually that is a better way of saying it, you know, All of Christian life is a growth opportunity. My assumption is that no one here has yet arrived at full maturity in the faith. Right? No no one's walking exactly in Jesus' footsteps in everything they do. So all of Christian life is change, in my view. Growth. One degree of glory to the next. All right? So here's, here's just one particular thing that I want us to think about. I would love us as a church to be able to overcome something this year overcome something that I have seen in this place for the last decade that I've been here. And it's this. This church is full of people who are, by nature, effusive, outgoing, joyful, uh, happy, um, emotional, and expressive. Not all of us are, but we have a lot of them. And yet, and yet, something happens when you walk through that red door. Something happens. This enormous wet blanket descends from the heavens, or maybe from under the earth, more likely, and smothers all of that fizz, all of that zing, all of that, whatever it is. And I don't know what, I don't know why. 
I've spoken about this before. I, I thought for, for a while, is it me? Because I'm a little bit more reserved than those people are. And, you know, when I'm, like, I'm, I, I, I you know, maybe it's, may, maybe I am, um, maybe I'm setting the cultural kind of vibe here. And so we're all a bit, you know, down and morose and withdrawn. But then I thought about it for a bit and I realized I'm not, I don't have that kind of power. I just, my personality is just not, some people have that kind of personality that commands a room. I don't have that. So it's not my fault. Stop blaming me. All right. <laughs> and then I thought maybe it's the Church of England thing, you know, like we're an Anglican church and Anglican churches, you know, not, you know not, Anglican, real Anglicans don't have shoulder muscles. No one knows how to raise their hands. We're all just kind of like dead fish in the pews and but then we're like we've only got about five Anglicans in this church anyway and it's never been a bit like can't be that I, I don't know what it is but I do know how culture change happens it happens just by a few people bucking the trend and enabling all the other people to kind of be themselves so just do that. I know, like people have said to me, I just, you know, Dave said to me recently, you know, you were preaching the other day and I just, I felt like I just wanted to say amen or, you know, like I just wanted to get up and say, guys, this is really important. I was like, why didn't you do that? Amen. <laughs> right on, right on. Because I read this psalm and it gives me a, poetic kind of picture, an illustration of what a worshipping community should look like, and then I see us, and it's not that. And I make provision for people who are naturally more introverted or just more reserved. Absolutely welcome here. It should be evident that you're welcome here, because at the moment all of us are that. So keep you keep doing your reserve thing, I'll probably be w one of you. But let us make space for the effusive praise of God that I see here in the Psalms and that ought to be present in our gatherings on Sunday. One of the, one of, one of the things I hear in response to that is, well, we don't want to be contrived. There's a lot of people in our church now who have had experience of church where their perception, at least, of what was going on was this is something contrived. You know, we're just if the if the lights aren't working, the smoke machine isn't working properly, then none of this happens. It's all just it's form, no substance. And I get that. That's not going to be our problem just yet. All right. Maybe when you see us with a, bu a bank of smoke machines and me descending through the roof to preach, maybe then we can have that kind of like, just hang on a second. That's not our problem. Probably not going to be our problem. Here's what I know is true. Yes, John. Yeah. I think many of us are bursting to say something, but as the moment passes, um, the emotion sort of falls away a bit, and then, you know, the moment's lost. So it's not that quite the way you've described it, you know. Okay, all right. So some pushback there from John, which is good, which is good. And, I, and please don't receive what I'm saying as some kind of indictment. Like, this is me. I'm preaching to me. I'm the guy at the front who's putting his hand up occasionally and wondering whether this is okay or not, all right? So this, this is me. I'm representative of all of us. And there are some times where, yeah, it's not going to be appropriate just to stand up and shout. I, I get that as well. But this is an area of, of growth for us. And here's, here's the thing. I know, this, is, this is why it's on my heart. I know that real worship, genuine, self-forgetful worship, really does happen. I've been in rooms where that has happened. And it was profound. And I've been, in, I've been in places where that has happened where it's not because oh, we're in a Pentecostal church and this is just what happens. It was in the, uh, some unlikely places. I think of one men's convention with a bunch of very 
heady, you know, guys who are there for the teaching, that when it came to the worship, it just, where we stood up and sang some 500-year-old hymns, it, like, I was surprised that fire wasn't falling down on people's heads. Powerful, self-forgetful worship. I know that that's possible. Here's, here's one thing. I think that that kind of worship happens when you're captivated by something other than yourself. You're captivated by other. When all eyes and hearts are trained on something other, then that can happen. As soon as you start being absorbed by yourself, like, am I, do I, I'm standing up the front. Do, am I looking good in these jeans? Am I, is everyone else raising their hand? Or, you know, do I still have bed head? Whatever. As soon as we do that, is my voice cracking? Am I a bad singer? Then it, the, the wind goes out of it. Because you're no longer captivated by the thing that you're worshipping. It becomes about me or us. I've experienced this once, and this is, this is proof, okay? Proof positive that this is possible and should be actually really like a common experience for us because I experienced this in a completely non-Christian, secular environment, one of the most powerful experiences I've had of it. 2013, I was at the MCG. I was at the MCG with 100,000 people who shouldn't be the kinds of people swept up into worship, like men, for example. The kinds of people that you don't expect to be swept up into the emotion of something, 100,000 men at a sports game. And yet I went there to see my beloved Liverpool football club, the 100,000 other people, the only opportunity we've seen, we've had to see them in the flesh. Normally we're up at 2 and 3 and 4 in the morning just to catch a glimpse of the team that we love. And here they were in Melbourne, 100,000 of us at the MCG. And before every home game the, the, for Liverpool, they play the, um, the, uh, the song, You'll Never Walk Alone. And it's kind of an, an anthem for them. And at 2013, with my terrible phone camera, I took some footage of it. Just, uh, I'm going to play just like 30 seconds of it. You guys got that? You got some sound for us? Well, let me fill you in. There you go. So that experience of worship was possible because you had a whole group of people who were completely transfixed on what was going on in the middle of the oval and not on self. That chorus of 100,000 guys who would otherwise be probably a little bit embarrassed about standing up and raising their hands and singing at the top of their voice was possible because we were captivated by something that wasn't me or even us. There's a growth opportunity for us this year. Let me land this thing. This is, this is landing on the, the last verse of the, of the psalm and this is like the foundation. Everything we've heard this morning, everything I've said has its foundation at the, at the bottom of the psalm. Verse 5, it says, For the Lord is good, and His faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. God's covenant faithfulness. His promise never to leave us or forsake us. His promise to adopt us and embrace us. His faithful Love. That's the foundation. That's why he says all of that stuff, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, and then 4, all of this is true because 
my invitation for you to express thanksgiving is on the basis of the Lord being good. His faithful love endures forever. When I was in, that, in, in the USA, like I said, 20 years ago, when I was there, I got to love worshipping God in African-American churches. Part of me was sad that there had to be African-American churches, but I, I get it. I, I get why there is. But I, I used to love being the only white guy at these, these African-American, these black churches. Love the experience of some of what we've been talking about, this effusive gratitude, much of it born out of the most intense suffering that the, 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 the experience of slavery gave voice to so much of their worship. I used to love it. There was one thing that kind of annoyed me, though. They always had this call and response thing. They'd do it all throughout the service. Someone would say, God is good. And then the congregation would say, all the time. I'd never come across this before. I grew up in Anglican churches. We never did that. We had our own liturgy. It just wasn't that one. And it used to, it used to irritate me a little bit because I was like, that's a little bit basic, don't you think? Like, that's, I can imagine our Sunday school doing that, but now we're grown-ups. Maybe we need something a little bit more, you know, some more substance. And I, I was a fool for thinking that. Because what they were saying was the most beautiful, deep, profound truth. That's that's the deep end of the theological pool. If you want to jump into the deep end of theology, get your head around that. God is good all the time. It's just a a paraphrase of verse 5. God is good. His faithful love endures forever. Maybe this year, part of that growing into what God wants for us in that experience of gratitude and thanksgiving, that experience of worship in spirit and truth, maybe part of it is us just reconnecting with that truth. God is good all the time. Let me pray to that end. Father, thank you for this time we've had together, together around your word, your inspired poetry, your songbook. Thank you for giving us language that otherwise we would, would fail us. Thank you for this simple reminder this morning of your goodness and your faithful love. I pray that it would shape us, that it would lead us into thanksgiving, that it would lead us into a more effusive, expressive experience of worship not just on Sunday morning, but in all of life, wherever the temple of God is. Help us, Lord. We need your help. We need you to lead us. You are our shepherd. Please help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.